0: Okay, everybody, happy Friday to you. It is Ryan Catherwood. Thanks for listening to Alumless. I'm your host. Uh, Alumless is a Chris Marshall Advancement Consulting production. On the show, we discuss alumni and donor engagement strategies and other trends in university advancement. Uh, thanks to all of our listeners for making Alumnus part of your work routine. And um, I had a lot of great feedback recently from listeners that uh, have mentioned they enjoy the show, enjoy the podcast. Uh, So we're grateful to be building a a bit of a community around alumless and really excited for today's show. Uh, Today we are broadcasting live as we try to be and uh, often get a lively discussion going in the LinkedIn comments. So please, if you're listening to us live, uh, say hello, introduce yourself, and don't hesitate to ask Chris or myself a question, Uh, or even better yet, uh, be sure to ask a question today's special guest Karen George, and Bonnie Devlin, managing partners and co-owners of Washburn and Goldrick. And uh, if I can't get to the question during the LinkedIn live show, rest assured we'll try to tackle your questions in the bonus segment, uh, which we record after the LinkedIn live show and publish on the podcast version of Alumnus. Okay, so without further ado, let's bring in the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Chris Marshall. How you gotta are you stop, today? you got to stop saying that
1: stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh,
0: you know, do it. Right? Like, what's going on? What's shaking in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania
2: today? Like most people uh, with younger kids, uh, it's back to school mode, right? Where we got kids going to school. We had already one homesick. Um, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. But chasing around with activities and my wife does the bulk of that. I don't know how she does it, but uh, I've been traveling quite a bit. I've been in Durham at NC State and uh, Duke and, and Durham and NC State and Raleigh um, and then at uh, Gettysburg and University of Delaware. So it's been pretty busy for me on the road in the last two weeks, really.
0: Absolutely. And actually, you know, we had a chance. I always love when we get the chance to check uh, catch up in person. Yeah, And we did so um, a couple of weeks ago at the Washburn and McGoldrick team retreat. And I know I had a great time learning and sharing at the retreat, and there were some great discussions, uh, but you've got a special relationship with our guests today, uh, Bonnie and Karen uh, of Washburn and McGoldrick. And I thought it was a good moment as we sort of start the show today to share a bit more about how CMac and Washburn and McGoldrick are connected. Yeah.
2: Bonnie and I go back, and I'll tell that story in later, but um, but as I was launching CMAC f- almost four years ago now, Bonnie was somebody I went to as, you know, a special advisor friend and mentor and asked advice and guidance, and and Bonnie said something to the effect of, you know, we have a lot of clients who need help on the alumni relations side, and I said, I think I'm going to have clients who are going to need help on the development side, so we have just sort of uh been partner companies is how we think of each other. Uh, we, we use each other's expertise, um, connections, networks, and you know, uh, you know just as someone to run things by and bounce things off of. It, and, and so I feel like a part of that team. And um, I, I know you've just been uh, absorbed into that group as well as, as part of it, having attended that conference. So it's just a good group of people to have. The you know, And the other thing is for a while I was by myself and you joined a, a little over a year ago. But with Bonnie and Karen, the team is another dozen people. That makes you feel like you're part of something bigger and broader, and I love that. We we meet monthly with that group and get to really interact. And you know, again, we, we leverage each other's expertise and, and, and networks, and that helps both companies. It helps us all as individuals as consultants learn and grow. And um, it's just been a great partnership, as how I would describe it. It's been wonderful.
0: Well, it was a really fun event and it was actually I grew up in New England myself and um it was but it was my first time in Northampton, uh Massachusetts and on the campus of Smith College which uh was really cool. That's uh, Karen's hometown and so that was really fun as well to see a part of New England that I hadn't been to before even having grown up there. Uh but um yeah, so you know, I think that there's so much to talk about today that it makes a lot of sense to go ahead and bring uh Karen George and Bonnie Devlin into the stream so we can have a lively conversation. All right. We're clicking on the button. With two guests. What's that? This is our first time with two guests. It's our it. first time with two guests. <laughs> Bonnie Devlin, Karen Lee George, how are you today? It's great to see you.
3: <laughs> Terrific. Great to see you too. Terrific to Bonnie see Bonnie Devlin and, and funny Karen funny. George
0: are the I'm sorry, go ahead.
3: Just beautiful sunny
1: day here in Northampton, Massachusetts.
0: Yeah, well, it was great when we were up there. Actually, it was funny. the funny part was when the hotel we were meant to stay at uh, was actually pretty hot when we were there, and the air conditioning broke. Right, so you and your team sort of scrambled and overnight
2: you know, changed venue. Over, right? overnight,
0: <laughs> that was our classic, you know, alumni relations scramble there, right? Uh, trying to make sure your event went off out of, a, of it nobody noticed the difference, right? Yeah. Uh, which was great. But uh, Bonnie Devlin and Karen George are the managing partners and co-owners of Washburn and McGoldrick LLC. Washburn and McGoldrick is a consulting practice with experts that help colleges, universities, and independent schools successfully seek philanthropic support and create lasting relationships. Uh, So founded in 1995 by Sue Washburn and Bill McGoldrick and co-owned since 2014 by Bonnie and Karen, the team at Washburn focuses on campaign planning and execution, advancement officer training, program assessment, strategic planning, gift planning, alumni engagement, external relations, institutional leadership, trusteeship, and governments. They do it all, ladies and gentlemen, uh, which, which is just the easy, easiest thing to say. But it's great to have you both on the show. And, and I thought I'd start off by asking you each the same question, maybe starting with Bonnie and then with Karen. Uh, there's so much to talk about, of course. Uh, and we had a chance to connect it together. And I got to, I got to learn a, bit, a little bit more about me, what makes you tick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as uh, about working as advancement professionals, you know, why did you want to own your own consulting practice? And, and what gives you the most sort of joy about what you do and, and the space that we work in?
3: Well, thank you, Ryan. And first of all, thank you to you and Chris for inviting us to be your guests. We've been looking forward to this, and it's it's great to have a chance to to reflect, to take a little bit of time out of the active practice, and and think about what what's led us here and where we're headed. Uh, for me, I had the great privilege and opportunity early in my career. Um, which I spent mostly at the University of Pennsylvania and then um, at Lehigh University. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, But I worked with some really fine consultants. Um, I had the chance to work with one of the founding members of Martin Lundy for Gibson and with Ned Lees um, early on during the Penn's first billion dollar campaign. Uh, Then I also worked with Carol O'Brien, Chris, a longtime consultant to Duke, um, among other clients, and always enjoyed that work and learned a lot from them about the, the ability to, to step back and look at a program and provide assessment and guidance. And I loved that. Um, when I went to Lehigh, I first became a client of Washburn and McGoldrick. And um, neither Bill nor Sue were my consultant was my consultant. My consultant was Peter Buchanan. And some people remember just this wonderful man, Peter, who was the vice president at Wellesley, the vice president at Columbia University, and also he's a former president of Case, our professional organization. And Each of them encouraged me. They saw something in me that I didn't even know was there. They thought I would be a good consultant. And they encouraged me to consider that. Um, So when I had the opportunity, um, Bill and Sue listened to Peter (laughs) and said, you know, why don't you come join us? And I think what I've loved about it is the chance to, you know, I'm parent, a child of two teachers, and fundamentally we do a lot of teaching, a lot of teaching, training, and coaching. And I really enjoy that part of the work. Um, it's a it's a bit of uh, a little bit of counseling too in that in that line between counseling and coaching. And I think both Karen and I were surprised how much of that there is in the work. Um, but that's what I love.
0: Awesome, Karen. What about you?
1: Um, I, I'll echo and amplify um, and agree with with uh, my your business partner there, um, Bonnie said, but let me first start also by adding my thanks. Thanks, um, Ryan and Chris, for having us on. It's been in ink in the calendar or in virtual ink for, for a while and and definitely looking forward to this conversation and enjoying it already. So in addition to to what Bonnie said, I mean, I, I also feel incredibly fortunate and grateful. One of my first vice presidents um, uh, was Sue Washburn. And so the the connection to Washburn and McGoldrick and the connection to the impact of this work, whether on campus or now as a consultant, has, has is woven through pretty much my entire career. I've been with Washburn and McGoldrick now for almost 18 years, which seems impossible to me. Um, and through all of that, I think a consistent theme, why I love this work, why I love now being um, part of the ownership of it. Um, is that it's collaborative. You're never on a, and Chris, you said this in the introduction, there's a collaborative energy to that. Um, collaborate, collaboration with our clients, where we're, we're problem solving together. While we may be looked at as the experts, and we definitely look through the lens of experience, we work to really draw out the best that we find in every single one of our clients. I also love in this work, whether from an ownership perspective or the active hands-on work, I love the diversity of our clients. Some of the, the goals they have might be shared. Might, you might even argue that they're universal and have not changed dramatically over the course of this profession. But their unique cultures and the energy that each of the teams bring to the work, I love. And while I loved being a campus officer, we get such a wide range of that now in this work. And it keeps us, keeps us young, maybe, or at least I'd like to believe it keeps us young um, and keeps us energized. And we're all about so that, that common purpose of trying to affect change. So I love that. The ownership part of it, I mean, my goodness, the opportunity to work for mentors, um, both on a campus and then a, in a consulting firm and be tapped by them to take up the mantle of their incredible leadership there are days, I think, when Bonnie and I still can't believe that it sort of rolled out that way. We're grateful. We appreciate it. And we've got the opportunity to put our own imprint on a company that was a going concern and created by two amazing leaders who are still very active in this industry. So there's, there's a gratitude aspect to, to, to this all around.
0: That's fantastic, and you, I really got the sense of uh, the things that you and and Bonnie have been mentioning when I was able to join you last month. Uh, really, a, a great work family environment. Um, but Karen, when we were talking about you know what we wanted to focus on today, um, we sort of landed on the idea of campaign readiness as the topic. You know, as you work with partners in the early stages of preparation for a campaign. Now, What are a few of the questions that you always like to ask? And and how does engagement fit into those set of questions? A lot of our listeners sort of come from the engagement side of the advancement shop.
1: Absolutely. So let's start there, actually. Let's start with engagement, because it's, I'd contend it's sort of the broad umbrella under which we're working. Yes, it's absolutely true. And we're thinking about campaign readiness that will often be asked to focus on the dollars. That's critically important. The but we can't get to those ambitious goals that that even that sense of readiness without understanding how our audiences interact and get involved and engage with us, engage with our messaging, engage with our priorities, engage with our, and when I say our, I really mean so that the campus leadership. What I worry about, and I know you didn't ask me about worries, but it it sort of, it helps me think about the questions I ask and assess and that we assess um, readiness. I worry that campuses and organizations can be fairly inwardly focused and they'll have great plans and ideas about their priorities and then decide, all right, let's share these with our, our donors, our volunteers, our audiences. And sometimes they're almost so fully baked And it will sound to those we hope to engage, oh, our great ideas, your money, your time. So if we are truly going to earn the right to ask for somebody's time, which is incredibly precious as we know, Chris was just referencing what it's like with kids in school and activities. We are all that precious commodity of time. We don't get more of in a day. So when I think about campaign readiness, especially when we're speaking with CEOs, I want to ensure that the questions that I ask have to do with, Do you, are you truly ready to bring in your, your audience and listen carefully to their advice and opinions? Are you willing and flexible to incorporate their ideas and opinions and sense of, of where they are in your plan going forward? Because if you're so rigid and that your plan mm-hmm. is the exact right one, you may not be ready actually for the response and and ready then to fund those ideas, to involve those ideas. Are you, are you ready to talk about and define engagement? We're I mean, you know, this better perhaps than, than anyone. It's the space you're working in you and Chris. Um, We talk a lot about having an engagement goal, for example, in a campaign that might line up side by side with that big dollar goal, but then when we ask questions about, all right, how do you define that? What does that mean? How are you going to add excitement to that and really achieve that? How do you define success for that? Sometimes there's a blank stare that comes back. So that doesn't mean you can't move forward. In fact, that just gives us great opportunity to really dig in and think about how we define this clearly, how people can achieve those goals clearly and how they can think of the many different ways in which they bring their stakeholders and audience members closer. So they will invest time and and significant dollars or all their, you know, not necessarily always significant, but their dollars in in the endeavors ahead.
0: Bonnie, so. what do you think? S- same, same question. What what questions do you like to ask and, and how do you think about engagement?
3: Well, I, I'm going to talk about two different pieces of that. So one of the big questions, and it relates to Karen, what Karen was saying about the impact. Um, You have to have a strategic direction for the college or university or independent school. And if you don't have that, it's very hard then to make the case for whatever it is you want to raise money for or wherever you want your alumni to support you on. too many times, and we're hearing it in feasibility studies. We, I think we've done now 65 feasibility studies over the life of the firm, and we do several every year. Karen and I've each finished doing some very recently. And people think about the questions for a case you know, why this institution, why now. But the real question we learned came, uh, it came in many ways from uh, another one of our our partner firms, um, Siggy Thompson, where the, uh, where Pat LaPera, the president emeritus, emerita will say, so what, so what's, you know, so what, why should people care? And I don't think that. Um, our institutions, in examining their navels, <laughs> sometimes get to that particular um, that issue, and that really does start with the leadership. It, it, that's that's the president, that's the provost, that is, the, in, in many ways, the board. What 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 do they want? So we start many times with that question, and getting that question right often. Takes If you can get that right, a lot of the other pieces then will fall into place. I yeah. think from engagement, on the engagement point of view, I, I think too many times, and unfortunately, uh, this week's latest release from U.S. News and World Report just reinforces this. Alumni engagement for too long has been defined by annual giving participation, and it's so much more than that, as you you well know, preaching to the converted here. Um, but that whole idea of, you know, why what's what's the value proposition? And too many times, just like Karen said, people say, "Here, we're doing all these great things. Give us money." I think the same is true. Come, we're going to throw these events, and we're going to write these publications, and uh, and here you have them, you receive them when. The, the real value is when, it's a, a, when the value proposition is there for both. What do each party um, benefit? How do each party benefit from it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Chris, you, you've just been hired by an advancement VP in the run-up to a campaign. What questions as a incoming engagement strategist consultant are you asking?
2: Yeah, let, let me... Um... Just to to share something I learned with Bonnie and Karen, and I've been added to a few um, projects where they're working on a pretty broad what ultimately wants to become a feasibility study to launch a campaign. But what Bonnie and Karen and the firm Washburn McGoldrick does is they do a campaign readiness assessment just prior, not always, but mostly. Um, and what I've been so impressed by is that there's a there's a there's a pretty clear path to determine whether or not someone's ready. And what's most impressive, Bonnie and Karen have gone back to clients and said, "You're not ready." <laughs> and here's what needs to happen between now and then. And that is a strong message. When you, you know, I, I almost thought it was like a perfunctory thing. You just move right into feasibility study. But in, in many cases, they're not ready. And and my questions on the alumni side are are very basic. And, and are they ready to even think about this? Do we have the systems in place? Are we willing to track the alumni engagement? Do we have the business processes in addition to the systems? Where to put it, how to get it in there? But the big one is, do they have the institutional will to do so? And and, and that starts mm-hmm. with the vice president. Uh, I know we're gonna talk a little bit about how vice presidents feel about this, but um, the ones that I think are doing the best job are the ones that fully understand the integration of the advancement operation includes an engagement, yeah. of course they understand that, but but that their alumni program is gonna play a role, not in shaping the next campaigns down the road, but in helping this one. And so do you have the systems, do you have the business processes do we have the institutional will to be able to track these things are the first things I look at from a readiness standpoint on the yeah. engagement side.
0: Yeah. Karen, maybe we can just take a step back for a second and, and talk about the economic outlook when it comes to philanthropic giving and some of the more macro factors, but what does the big picture look like for, uh, schools when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, engagement?
1: Oh gosh! Great, great, great question. And um, there's a lot packed into that, Ryan. But it, uh, the, the, you know, the big outlook. at Now, while I'd love to say that the crystal ball is is indeed crystal clear um, at Washburn McGoldrick, always paying attention to sort of external factors as well as the internal factors, and and the external factors related to the to the economy and some of the other major sort of factors definitely play a role in, in a campaign, campaign readiness, as, as well as sort of the back to what Chris just said, the will of the institution, the will of, of the vice president. Um, so I'm hedging here, right? Because I'm not, a, you know, the, the outlook on a day like this, I am back by the
2: and way. The classic consultant and just, a, it, depends. it depends.
1: It <laughs> depends. It always depends, right? It always depends. Right. Um, and that's right. That's, that's, that's a good answer. I, and, and indeed I'm back to, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't get a paper version anymore of my retirement account statements, but I'm back to not opening the email right. <laughs> because it's a long game. So that's a way of, so I'll, you know, get into your answer that way that, you know, clearly the immediate needs of our clients are really important. And we want to pay attention to that, but those immediate needs also set up that longer term, especially when we come to a campaign campaigns are about the long game And because this is a relationship based business at its core, we want to make sure that we are tending those relationships, tending to those relationships well, and thinking very carefully about how we craft and retain those new relationships over that period of time. So we're going to. You know we are going to go through periods that are going to are going to hurt more. Um, so we think about the economic outlook and how that overlays with a philanthropic outlook. We tend to see over time, and this is driven by data. If we we're looking at giving USA data and long term philanthropic data, we'll see the immediate response in phila- philanthropy tend to track standard and poor's, you know, tend to track some of those ups and downs, but not typically as dramatically, actually. So all of that to say that people continue to engage and spend their time. In fact, they will spend more time with those organizations they care about because they know those organizations are also feeling that pinch. People mm-hmm. understand that connection and correlation. When it comes to to giving the philanthropic engagement, We're often finding, and we hear this from the feasibility study interviewees of just this past summer, the economy has started to come back up in conversations um, and yet it has more to do with maybe reducing the number of charitable organizations they support, but not taking the ones they care about most off their list. So that's a long way of saying, when we see the storm clouds on the horizon and there are lots of them I know that right now it's not just economic outlook we're talking about an increasingly polarized um society not just here in this in the United States but globally do we does anybody even listen to anybody else and that's a core top skill in this work is is listening with discipline and and true willingness to understand what somebody's saying so yeah. While it makes institutions nervous, we have not yet, to this point, and I'm hopeful that Bonnie will nod her head, we have not yet, to this point, told an institution they aren't ready purely because of the economic outlook.
3: Right. That was, yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: Chris, in your, in your estimation, have most advancement VPs sort of changed their tune on engagement? Uh, yeah,
2: yes. I can stop there and let Bonnie spend the rest of the time uh, on her answer, but I'll share with this. Here's my indicator. Um, I spent, I spent nine years consulting in this field and for the beginning of it, almost all the clients were the associate vice president or equivalent for alumni engagement. Whereas today it's the opposite. The vice presidents for advancements are hiring CMAC and Washburn McGoldrick on the alumni engagement side to help them think about a more integrated strategy. So so to me, that's a signal, a clear market signal that says, this is on their mind. How do they take that asset that they have and leveraging those resources in a way that's going to help them now and in the future raise more money? At the end of the day, we have to raise money to fuel the the machine that is these, these large institutions. Engagement is critically important. And I believe building relationships with people and involving them and all those things are important. But how do we measure all this at the end of the day, it's gonna come down to do we have the fuel to run the engine and, um, and more, more VPs I believe are seeing the importance of a strong functioning uh, alumni engagement um, operation that are gonna be a part of that overall running that engine. So, yes, it's back
0: to my short answer. Let let Bonnie take any more on that time. So, Well, just to follow up, Bonnie, when alumni aren't engaged with their schools as, you know, alumni or donors, you know, what are some of the most likely reasons why and how should advancement leaders, presidents, superintendents be thinking about the importance Mm -hmm. of this special group and their needs and, and how to earn their philanthropic support?
3: Well, Ryan, as you know, we've been doing a number of surveys for our clients, alumni surveys, and often in partnership with CMAC. And we now are have a body of data that suggests that, frankly, the reasons for not being engaged are very similar to the reasons for not giving. And one one of the, the top of the list, um, which is really interesting to me, is people will say uh, we live too far away. So we, so proximity equals engagement to ma- in many people's minds. Um, but if you unpack that a little bit further, it turns out to be that um, another organization, they actually feel closer to it. And I don't mean just geographically, but local organizations have more impact in terms of if they get involved in serving that organization as a volunteer or in giving to it. So um, that so they feel closer to it or they just don't feel as though the impact of their service or their gift to alma mater is going to be as significant. Um, There's a small minority who basically won't who just won't give and won't volunteer. They've moved on Um, and it. It, it's probably as high as somewhere between 15 and 20% of every alumni population. Chris, would you say, I mean, you've seen no, that. Yeah, I've
2: seen up to a third, you know, and we're just not going right. to get
3: them. It's just not going to get them. But the, the others often, they and then there's this, the classic way that happens. We see this in fundraising. We teach this in gift training. It's simply that nobody asked. Nobody asked. Right. Nobody made it easy to be a volunteer. Or, and and that means not just asking someone to be on a board that seems unfortunately often to be the 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 first thing to think of oh well let's put so-and-so on the board or let's make a committee but in today's world with younger alums with women with people of color that's not that's not necessary and i would say we're Pretty much everyone. That's on the police part, you know, really everybody. But I think in particular we see this in in, and some of the groups that I mentioned. Women will say, Hey, I've got a lot on my plate. I can't, I can't take that on. I don't I but do you say, would you come to campus and speak to students about your experience in the work world? We, or your experience running a nonprofit or whatever it is. if you, The one-off opportunities are great first-time engagement opportunities. And, and people will say yes to that. And they gradually, then you build on that and, and take it, you know, get people much closer. You know, when we go to the, the extreme, when people have made extraordinary gifts to the institution, it's not by chance. They've been involved in non-fundraising activities so they've been, they've, their advice has been asked. They've been involved deeply with students, with faculty, with coaches, with uh, staff members and student affairs, whatever it is. In, in addition to their good colleagues in advancement, they've had those opportunities. It's been tracked, some, some really interesting work on principal gift donors um, making the largest gifts. They've been around for a long time in most cases, and they've been deeply involved in the life of the institution.
0: Yeah, the anatomy of a million dollar gift is something like 10 years or more of, of right. active engagement when that's you, right. when you look at that. And yeah. I think that's a really amazing and important statistic. Um, yeah. Chris, it's hard to believe, but we're approaching the top of the hour. These hit the go by super fast. We were warning uh, Karen and, and Bonnie about <laughs> the speed of lightning by which these shows go, but we're, before we hop off and um, record our bonus section, Chris, who are we going to be featuring uh, on our next show?
2: They're all fun uh, for different reasons, but uh, from Carnegie Mellon University, the Associate Vice President for Alumni Engagement, Teresa Trombetta will be our guest from Carnegie Mellon. We're looking forward to that one.
3: Great.
0: Yeah, that'll be great. We'll have Teresa on in two weeks time. Same time, same fancy place here on LinkedIn. And, uh, for those of you who are, uh, podcast listeners, I talked to someone the other day who was like, you know, thank you for making the podcast edition because they listen on the way to work. Uh, so I thought that that was a pretty cool piece of feedback, but, um, thank you so much for everyone for listening live or or for watching this, uh, in the days and weeks to come on LinkedIn. And, uh, we'll see you on the podcast and, uh, Chris, Karen, and Bonnie, we'll see you on zoom in just a minute. Thank
3: you. Thank you.
0: Everybody. Bye-bye.
2: Thanks
3: for listening.
0: Okay. We are back with the bonus section of alumnus. Thank you for listening to the podcast edition of the show. We're glad you're staying with us. And we just had a great live session with Karen George and Bonnie Devlin, uh, the co-managing principals and co-owners of Washburn and McGoldrick. Uh, It's great to have you back and uh, pick up the conversation where we left off. That's I told you, that's a really fast 30 minutes, isn't it? It was a
1: sprint. It's a sprint.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a sprint. Well, as we uh, sort of think about sort of picking up on the conversation, there's there's lots of threads we could go to. But Bonnie, I was going to mention, we should share uh, with the (laughs) listeners that uh, you actually had a chance to work alongside Chris Marshall. Uh, as his peer at Lehigh University, what was that like? Well,
3: once we picked him out of the pool and dried him off and uh, towel him down, he, he actually became <laughs> really wonderful at this work. And honestly, I was thinking about it, I think of the three C's. He was the, It's the same way we work together now, collaborative, creative, sometimes comical, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. I mean, we take our work seriously, but not ourselves, which is what Karen and I always say in the company. And he he brought such a new way of approaching the work that came. He always says, I know, Chris, I should put words in your mouth, but that you were looking for the metrics and you didn't see them. You, you, You know, you're used to having a stopwatch in your hand for all those years. And where were the metrics? And, you know, I'm just so proud of the the work that he's been able to do, not only at Lehigh, where I think our favorite thing to do actually was to be co-MCs together. We got to MC the alumni parades each year, and we got to MC the um, tribute, the farewell tribute to President Farrington, Greg Farrington, who was both of our bosses when he when he was about to um, go on to California um, Academy of Sciences. So um, that opportunity to ad lib together, <laughs> and
2: neither of us are shy in in that oh. context. When we put us together, it was it was scary. Uh, <laughs> some of the things we did, we had a great time.
3: We did, we did.
2: And so, to your comment, um, I'll never forget it was in the first month I was in the role at Lehigh, and I always tell people to this day that. I, was, I came from a sport that measured to the hundredth of a second and had a scoreboard at the end of the day right up next to the pool and you could see who won and who lost. Um, and you don't need to know anything about swimming um, to understand that it's a very quantitative you know, outcome. And I, I came into a meeting early on in my first month of my career and I pulled the team from the Lehigh group together and I said, I'm a former coach. I know when we've won, we've lost or if we've gone faster, we've gone slower. How do we know? What does it look like for us? And there was like people looking at each other. There was complete silence. There was, at that point, the case metrics projects hadn't begun. I hadn't gone out and done the work that I did since, And which is there were some early models out there. People were building some ways to track this, and that became sort of a, a passion of mine over the last 20-plus years now is to and help the, the industry get to a point where we can – it's not, not perfect, but we're tracking now, and we do have a scoreboard, and we can look at things, look at ourselves, improve over time, and that, to me, makes – makes me happy, makes
0: my DNA of a coach soul happy. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's awesome. And, you know, Bonnie, um, you know, you've worked on many successful campaigns and, and they're a really important part of what we do in advancement. Uh, we alluded to this question, we sort of touched upon it, but uh, should all schools be in some sort of campaign mode, whether planning for it, executing it, evaluating it, or is there a, a perpetual campaign uh, scenario? What do you think about that?
3: Um, I actually have been doing some of my own research on this. And of uh, those, the the more time spent in campaign on a campus, the more successful Yeah you are. I mean, it's kind of, it sort of makes sense, doesn't it? And I think partly because of all the pressures on the various sources of revenue for, for any form of education these days, there are really, there are only so many levers you can pull. And one of the things you can't really do much of at all is raise tuition. Um, that there's, a, there's a ceiling on that. There's already, a. a a fair amount of public outcry about the cost of higher education in general. Um, so that that's one. The endowments are are wonderful to have and but misunderstood by many people in terms of the flexibility. Most of those are restricted funds and people need to, they have to be spent in the way the donors intended. That doesn't necessarily that provide, provide money for a new building or to start it. Including,
2: Bonnie, internal audiences, faculty and others don't get it. You raised a billion dollars, where is it? And it's.
3: (laughs) Right. And that's on us, isn't it? I mean, I think that is on us. I think that's on our leadership to be able to, to talk about it in clear and simple terms that um, doesn't equate it with hoarding that looks at the long-term. Karen was talking about this earlier about the long-term we're in this for the long game. And that's, that's so important, but you look at that, you look at, there are not very many other avenues for revenue. And so fundraising is the most flexible. And I do believe that. And I think that has changed since um, Karen and I first were doing this work where you would, you would see a campaign and, the staffing would be down here and the money would be down here. Then it would go up. It would peak for a couple of years of the campaign and then it would go back down. They lay off the staff. Then they'd start again. And they'd mm-hmm. have to start all those relationships up again. What it looks like now a lot more, if I can continue to draw with my finger, I'm sorry for the <laughs> podcast, the audience. Is that right? I just realized that, but um, now it's much more stepped, right? Yeah. And so you're going to raise a new level of support and then ideally sustain that over time, and then build on top of that, um, and you know, again, it's going to differ from in, in terms of the maturity of an institution, what's happening, the leadership. So many factors go into that, but I think the reality is here. It also it gives you the opportunity to sustain relationships, and in the end, a campaign is simply a marketing construct. Anyway, it's, it's a way of telling a good, having a good arc of a story. Right? You know, here's the yep. beginning, here's the end. This yep. is what we've done, and Um, This is the impact it's
2: had. Karen, I want to turn to you and ask you a question because this was always interesting to me early on. There's there's a magic formula that I know you have for (laughs) coming up with a campaign goal. Uh, Can can we share that? Is it proprietary? We can't share that in a podcast. (laughs) Proprietary
1: information.
2: I I think. No. no, And also, here's the question: How do you advise a president or vice president or board? on what a campaign goal should be. What's the stuff that you look for and the questions you ask to uncover that number. And then if you could share our formula. <laughs> nothing nothing sure. proprietary, don't give it away.
0: <laughs> right.
1: well, no trade know, secrets. Charge royalties or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Sue
3: Washburn who came up with it. <laughs>
1: exactly. Sue Washburn was the, the, the genius behind it. And it's something as an algorithm or a formula that has withstood the, the test of time and helps really frame and answer that question. What goes into that goal conversation? Um, so, you know, so, so I, I won't draw it out, but for those who are listening as well or watching, you know, we'd share the screen, but it's really looking first at needs plus priorities. So imagine N plus P if you or if you love algorithms and important to emphasize, it's not just ongoing needs. Um, every organization, every institution, every individual has needs, but okay, so what, what are your strategic imperatives? What are your top line priorities? That within this period of time, you as an organization, you've declared that these are your most important. And when you do that, you need to declare why they're most important. And back to what Bonnie was saying and, and what we've heard from our partners at Steggy Thompson, the so what. Okay, so you've explicated your priorities, sometimes in too fancy flowery academic language. So one of the things we help do is to be important ears and relay back Okay, these are great needs and priorities, but no one has any idea what you're talking about. So identify those so N plus p and put those in parentheses so it looks you know fancy like a physics formula perhaps. Um, so you've assessed all of that, you've gotten ready for that. And if you don't have an idea of those priorities, that does roll into campaign readiness. We'll say, well, if you've got a really lengthy list, things you'd like to do of your ambitions, that's all well and good. But your donors are going to say which ones are the most important? Because the longer the list is, the less of a priority any one of those are. And that's tough. That's that's not a, a trivial task for any organization because there are so many needs out there as we we're talking about, and they are constant. But your donors want to know, those who want to be engaged with you want to know what do you care about most and what are you going to do with that? So needs plus priorities, um, minus, plus or minus R. So what's the R? Reality. What's the reality? So that rolls up into your question, too. The questions we ask donors, the data that we look at that drives our forecast of how well you might be able to meet those needs and priorities within a specified period of time. So where is the organization as a philanthropic priority for individuals? It's not at the top or close to the top. It's going to be a heavier lift. Who are the individuals who are willing to step forward first and even at what levels? Asking them that specifically. Who are the volunteers who might be aligned or getting ready to, to lead the to to lead that charge? Is your staffing um, uh, well respected, enthusiastic, and adequate? Frankly, do you have ample staffing to carry forward this endeavor? Do you have the resources? So, the, the your reality are the internal and external factors that, when put all together. You know, shine more of a green or maybe amber light on your ability to to, to go forward, because while we may have different factors we're asking about in that formula, um, not all of them necessarily will have green lights. And that's okay. We just want to understand what it's going to take. The biggie, really, and this is the the secret sauce and what what so, so you know, those of you who are listening in, this is our special, you know, our, our, our special formula here at Washburn McGoldrick. (laughs) And, and where, um, when Sue Washburn was, was making up this on the spot, it really does capture the work that we do that. So needs plus priority in parentheses, plus or minus our reality plus LOF. And we often ask people, you know, guess what LOF is? And they'll say, Lots of friends, lots of funds. Had people say, lack of funds. And I think, "Mm, maybe I haven't captured the audience well. (laughs) Plus LOF. But leap of faith. LOF is that leap of faith. So N plus P plus or minus R plus LOF, that leap of faith. The, The enthusiasm and energy that will carry the organization forward, often beginning with leadership. Everything begins with leadership. So a leader that's taking the charge And has everyone following them and is excited? Because there's always some risk in these endeavors. These are ambitions. These are stretches. This is not business as usual. This Mm -hmm. is about reaching a new horizon and doing some really exciting things and securing your financial underpinnings all along the way. Right? Engaging brand new people, perhaps, who have never been engaged in the organization. So it's going to take a leap of faith. And we also just don't know. Um, there are some marvelous surprises. We'll have individuals who will make significant gifts when they perhaps hadn't signaled that before. Um, you know, priorities, shift and change are things we can't anticipate. Our job, really in collaboration with clients to roll up to the g. So n plus p plus or minus r plus l o f equals g. And I would say g with a you know plural g our dollar goals, our engagement goals, what we really want is, when I think of a goal, what I, and what I usually ask a campus CEO or an organization CEO is project forward to the celebration occasion. Tell me what you're going to say at the podium. What will you and the leadership team say? What do you want to be remembered for at the end of this campaign? Because like it or not, It's us on the Zoom call or listening into the podcast that might remember the very specific dollar goals and exactly how many months it took. Um, And maybe we fill that out in surveys. That's important, but far more important to our organization's audiences would be what we've really achieved. Hmm. What What have we continued? What have we maintained? What have we amplified? What have we added to our organizations that clearly signal the direction we're going in? That's the exciting stuff. But the formula piece, there's lots of data that goes in there. There are a lot of opinions that go in there. Um, but that N plus P plus or minus R plus LOF always adds up to that big G.
3: Can I? Um, Please. Yeah, hop in. Just, I want to just say and build on um, what Karen was talking about, because I, I just came back last night. I was. Privileged to be at the, uh, the campaign launch for Illinois Tech in Chicago, and going forward on a campaign. And what struck me there that was at play were part different factors in that formula have different weights. Yeah. And um, our one of our founding member founding members of the firm, Bill McGoldrick, will, would always say campaigns fail due to lack of donors than any other reason. Kind of very simple, like if you don't have the donors, and I would say that that's absolutely true. And if you don't have the leadership, and I I think the difference in the campaigns that we've been a part of, whether as campus officers or as council or as volunteers ourselves, the differentiator in so many ways has been leadership and the leadership and really kind of that, that tri-cornered stool, if you will. Um, President, chancellors, Head of school, CEO, whatever, that that leadership role, so so important to be able that the that's what really inspires the leap of faith. And I watched this happen last night. They have the right president at the right time and a clear sense of he he was painting a vision. He was joined by an extraordinary board chair who was joining him in that vision and talking about it, putting in the context of the rich history that alums had experienced and looking forward to the new generations. And they also had two great student speakers, by the way, were student leaders who just, frankly, I think they put all the grownups to shame. They were I mean, not to shame. Always the best, so, right? They were so fantastic. But, you know, that so that point of, of ha- you have to have the donors um, and you, but you have to have the leadership and the leadership from you know, in every role there. So it's the volunteer leadership, it's the presidential or the CA, CEO leadership. And then it's the leadership and advancement and a unified integrated program. Those are the places that do wonderful things with their, their campaigns are means to an extraordinary end.
2: Let, let me jump in here real quick, right. If I could, both sure. Bonnie and Karen, I've heard stories from you about, it's not in our formula or in the, I posted it in chat for those of you can see the screen it's there. I right. mean, we can put the graphic up when we post produce this, <laughs> but but yeah, we can put it. Yeah, yeah. But what, what I've heard from both of you though is that there are more times when maybe if we had to put it in the equation, it would be a PO or a BCO, which is president's opinion or a board chair opinion, yeah. where their numbers out, even the formula we use, even after a leap of faith, even if we've done the work, they say, no, it's not going to be this, it's going to be this. And it's yeah. usually a bigger number. Quick thoughts on that. How do you handle it? How do you respond? Like
0: like getting into the friction points, right? Like when you have all these, when you have all these (laughs) leaders coming together to coordinate Mm -hmm. what the campaign goals should look like and there's friction, why does it happen?
1: Um, Let me take a a leap at this and then, you know, Bonnie, please, please chime in. I'll, I'll answer it two ways. And one is when it, when it's there at the very beginning, before you even get into the conversation, or you're maybe even engaged as counsel. And one yeah. of my favorite stories, and our colleague Susan Pettyjohn will remember this as well. She was at the vice chancellor at Appalachian State University when this happened, and I was having an initial meeting with their former chancellor, um, Ken Peacock, um, incredibly ambitious um, man, had been the dean of the business school and then was, you know, the, the chancellor um, with great ambitions for for App State. And um, he said, no matter what you say, no matter what you determine at Washburn McGoldrick, Karen, I'm going to go for a bigger number. And and when you hear it then, what was fabulous about that is it gave me great insight into his ambition, into his competitive drive, into, and in a sense of, you know, there was a twinkle in his eye when he said it. Mm -hmm. He said it with, with respect and joy. But what he was saying right up front was, I'm ambitious. I want to go for it. And I and I have set aside the time to do whatever you tell me you and Susan tell me I need to do um, with those who know this this advancement world so that we can do this. And so when you hear it, then in that way, I think it helps ease any friction that might come later. When it comes up later, when you've done all the data and you've interviewed that organization's donors and they have said, and sometimes it's even tougher when they've said, we love the institution. It's number one for us. We love your priorities, the institution's priorities. But then it gets to our question. We ask them about their own philanthropic stretch and what they might be willing. And it's not a solicitation. So it's, it's, yeah. it's not ever going to be exact because we're not in that moment when they ultimately decide to make the gift. But nonetheless, it's an important indication of what they'll do. And they say, everything is great, but my own gift is going to be X. And it may not be at the level at which the institution has aspirations mm-hmm. for those individuals. And so I guess I get back to for the for the leadership that wants to poke holes at the numbers we recommend, we're always trying to give them pathways to how they can achieve the best possible um, amount the best possible level of engagement, the best possible outcomes within that period of time, based on the empirical evidence of capacity, and and then the actual inclination, inclination of, right. of of their audience. With, I'd like to think we've got the humility to say there were, there you know here's an opportunity for you to press that even higher. So we yeah. stand by our numbers. But we say here are ways and here's what we want you to watch out for and avoid because that you won't meet your aspirations. If if you're not really listening to your donors, if you're not engaging them in a collaborative conversation about their philanthropy, if you walk in with a fully baked idea and you're not really talking, you're not including them in the process, it's going to be a a tougher lift. You know, it's not that we want to be wrong. If an institution ends up raising more than maybe we've recommended, that's exciting too because campaigns are accelerants. They tend to create momentum and people start to stretch more. But the friction piece is not so much, I'd like to think we're not saying, it's not whether we're trying to prove who's most right. We're trying to give the best advice we can as to how they can reach their ambitions, but also not go out of the gate so specifically with those ambitions that they um, aren't listening to their audience Mm -hmm. and run the risk of losing both their internal and external audiences.
3: I just want to build on that for a moment, because one of the things that we advise our clients to do, and those uh, those who've worked with us know this, and I think this has changed even more so over time we will say to people, Chris mentioned how we do readiness assessments, and sometimes it happens in the internal readiness piece, or sometimes it happens in the feasibility study piece. If the ideas and aspirations of the institution have not been shared broadly with key donors and key volunteers and influencers. You know, we kind of started using a little bit of jargon and we say we haven't socialized the case, but if that hasn't happened, then we could write the report now before we've even done the interviews because they don't know it. On the other hand, we've had great studies where people will say, "Yes, President so and so talked about this with me," or the head of the school yeah. and I had a discussion about this, and I'm really excited about it. You know, where you start to you see the seeds of what's going to be co creation of gifts yeah. um, between the do- the donors and the institutional leadership. You see volunteers. Um, who may not be the largest donors of the campaign, but who have great influence. And I see this, by the way, with alumni boards taking on a portion of the campaign That's as their project. And it might be the engagement goal and it might also be a particular, um, I don't know, alumni scholarship or something like that. But if they are brought into the process early on um, and there's a partnership about it, you get the results will always be better.
2: Yeah. I like to think about that as it's happening with them and yes. Not to them
3: is
0: often as yes. I use it to yes. right yes. exactly, yes. absolutely. I mean one sort of quick quick question, and then we'll we'll have our um what inspires you uh, question to wrap things up, which we always like to end the podcast on. But you know, we talked about the checklist, right? Being kind of an important component, and it's a very real checklist, right? That things that you know need to be in place. But is it also kind of a mindset, a philosophy of being campaign ready? I mean, should you be campaign ready sort of throughout? Uh, is it a momentum? Is it a buzz? Is it uh, sort of a a mojo, if you will? Um, <laughs> how do you, how do you how do you think about it?
3: I never thought of campaign mojo. Campaign before, mojo. I, like I just yeah, I like oh, I that can. image. I <laughs> think that's the title
0: of a book, I think, right there. <laughs> yeah,
3: there, there we
1: go.
0: Or at least <laughs> another, or maybe another podcast.
3: Maybe. podcast.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's essential. And I, you know, I think that runs through most of our work anyway. I mean, people mirror behavior, right? We mirror language. And so if we approach a new idea, we approach a task, a project like Eeyore. The audience is not going to be all of that excited. So there, there is a need to maybe, or maybe a, a better analogy rather than Winnie the Pooh would be, <laughs> you know, as, as an athletic. So I'll pull from Chris's coaching days, you know, if you're not sort of trained up, or at least at sort of a, a decent level of fitness, it's awfully hard when all of a sudden says, Hey, we've got this dream thing we're going to do. We want you to be the lead leg or the anchor leg, whatever it is. And you haven't really sort of kept yourself somewhat primed. I like that. That's good. It, right. You can do it.
2: Physical but fit, it but also mentally fit. Right.
1: <laughs> exactly. So that that minds so that mind over matter works to a point. Right. But if all the other systems aren't sort of ready, or at least in some good stage of readiness, that's it's going to be a lot harder. I mean, Bonnie, I think you referenced it in the earlier segment that. The days, the, the old-fashioned way of running a campaign where you would fund it for a while, staff up, get everyone focused on it, get really fluent about your messages on the campus. And then when you had the celebration party, you laid everybody off. I mean, it's sort of, it it I get how institutions did that, but it's as if you're assuming that you can just turn that off and on right um, and and it yeah. it takes longer than that and you can't turn that off and on and you certainly shouldn't do that with your donors and volunteers that that actually doesn't honor or respect the relationship we need to have with with our audiences. So yeah, I think there's a campaign mojo. and if we're not enthusiastic about it, I mean, there's a reality. and I working once with a, a client years ago, Marietta College where they talked about pragmatic dreaming. and yeah, that's an oxymoron. But it made sense. There's a pragmatism to this. There's the there's the checklist. There are the tactics. There are the things that you you want to get in orderly fashion. But there's also a dream piece of it that when the donor steps up and says, "I've got this fabulous idea," and it aligns with some of the things you're telling me about, what if we did this? Mm-hmm. Not ready for that. You might lose that amazing moment.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, I also was thinking about that in the in the context of. Um, having been through pandemic and watching some of our clients launch their campaigns or close their campaigns during pandemic and not being able to have live in-person events. And they did really, they really found ways to use zoom or to use various digital methods of, of encouraging it. But I I can tell you, what comes to mind to me is William and Mary and William and Mary had its first billion dollar campaign. And with and by the way, one with an engage a very prominent engagement goal and alumni participation goal, and as well as the dollar. 3 headed
2: goal. goal, right? Yeah. You know, right.
3: and three headed goal exactly. Um, we had a chance to do a post campaign analysis um, for them, and the volunteer leaders who had been so fantastic were disappointed by the inability to gather together in person mm-hmm. to celebrate the accomplishment. And they they had they really felt a loss there it, it, it that yeah. to not have that chance and to be there and to feel really wonderful about what had been accomplished which was truly spectacular. So there there's something as we as we come out of when well, we know we also draw different audiences when we do things in this in this particular format in Zoom. There is something to be said about the rubbing shoulders with people who care about the institution as much as you do. I mean, physically, it's 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 very exciting. I think that's where I felt mojo the most, <laughs> I would say, Ryan. I felt it last night at that event I was mentioning to you. You know, the vice president was up there being the MC and the energy in that room. you are also great to invite back the previous vice president, something we don't always see that, you know, where there's, um different eras but here it was great a great sense of this is building on past work and the 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 group there was so proud you could feel the energy and um a a group of technologists engineers scientists um who don't always get as emotional as i saw them last night it was really exciting yeah
0: you, I can tell you both get a lot of mojo from the people that you work with uh, and the, the excitement that exists when uh, the campaign is is launched and everything seems to be clicking and it just feels really good. Are there any other sources for your for your mojo before we uh, wrap up today's show Bonnie where do you what gets you inspired where do you find inspiration maybe beyond your the people you work with
3: well, one of the things we say in the firm is that we have focused deliberately on education because that's what we all know. That's what changed our lives. And I, I fundamentally believe in, first of all, I believe in the goodness of people. I do in the inherent goodness of people. And I see um, education being a way to help level the playing field and to give people a better life and to create better lives through what they're able to do. And that, that to this day still inspires me. And I listened to students last night and I really, I was inspired again. And we had a conversation, we had our our regular monthly practice group with our vice presidents. We do once a month and they can come in and talk about whatever is on their mind. And they were talking about the, the stress of the past couple of years and they were sharing ideas with each other about how they deal with that. And more than one of them is that I just simply get out on the road and I go see the donors and I talk to the, you know, and they inspire me. And that's the part of my job. It's not the management, it's not man, you know, the budget. It's um the not all that. It's actually seeing people who are inspired. I mean, I could never I always was astounded when people would thank me for helping them make their gift. (laughs) They were doing extraordinary, generous thing themselves, but we forget that we are helping them to do that. And that brings me joy. And now the fact that we're teaching others how to do that. Well, that's where I derive my joy.
0: That's awesome. Karen, would you add anything to that?
3: So, I mean, I
1: agree. I agree 100% yes, with, I'm... with what Bonnie just said, and absolutely draw it from from that that energy from others in that way for me it's not in addition it's not just a what it's a who and i think of this who all the time her picture is is near me um behind me you know people may not be able to see it if if you know somebody's watching this but if we're watching this but my um late grandmother lillian jackson lee who passed away in 2017 at the age of 106 and a huge part of my life, um, because she lived nearby when I went to college, and then when we moved back to this area, 24 years ago, um, got to know her even better, and right into the up to the last last moments of her life. But in 1938, she was part of a group. She was only 28 years old herself, but had already had three of her five children. She formed with other um, women, primarily women in her neighborhood, the We Modern Mothers Club. And they did this. This is in Springfield, Massachusetts, back in thirty-eight. So if you think about what was going on in the world, even in nineteen thirty-eight. Mm-hmm. Um, a black community. She's a she was a black woman. Um, put together that club because they wanted their children to benefit from the same types of activities and social engagement that they saw going on all around them, but weren't always able to gain access. So she, I would say she was sort of the first philanthropic um, uh, mentor for me because I went through her papers and saw pictures of her and her ledger where she recorded the $5 contributions from the other members of the We Modern Mothers Club in that neighborhood um, every month. So they would pool their dollars together to ensure that the children had a you know a, a variety of pathways and activities. And so you know, they had to make the ask. She uh, she had to do the the gift recording. They did stewardship work to be together. There was articles in the newspaper in Springfield, Massachusetts about about their work over years. Um, they disbanded in the seventies, so they stayed together. And you know, by then they'd become the we Modern Grandmothers. Um, <laughs> but for me, the, the again collaborative spirit, the focus on priorities the energy of engaging people using their time really well because these were very busy people who were often working a variety of jobs in order to just stay even. And for me that that's that who inspires me every single day. Mm. Never mind that she stayed active pretty much until the, the very end. So whenever I want to complain or whine about something, nope, mm. zip it, move right forward. <laughs>
2: It's a great story. Thank you, Karen, for sharing yeah. it. You're
1: welcome.
2: Awesome.
0: Well, that seems like a perfect spot to wrap things up for today's episode of Alumnus. Karen, George, Bonnie Devlin, co-owners, co-principals of Washburn and McGoldrick. It is great to have you on. And uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Have a great weekend.
3: Thank you for having Take us. Take everybody. Thank you. Invite us back. This was fun. <laughs>